0: Good morning. Welcome to 2024. Ready or not, here it comes. It's upon us. I hope that in the coming year you experience the goodness and compassion of Jesus Christ. I hope these last few weeks have been ones of blessing. And uh, as you gathered with family and friends, and we have had quite the experiences these past few weeks, some of them very joyous and some of them very sad. First, the joyous. Alyssa and Ben Dillow, did you bring your Christmas present this morning? There is Andrew John. Now that's a... That is a great Christmas present. I, I can go prophetic. I can say that that boy is going to be tall and he is going to have big hair. <laughs> I know. I've got history. Congratulations. Then we also want to pray and support our pretty. Because unexpectedly, Barb, who is a friend to so many of us, Unexpectedly lost her husband, Gary, this past week. And uh, he is in the presence of Jesus right now and uh, experiencing all that is right and good. Meanwhile, it's our privilege to come alongside Barb and uh, encourage and help her in any and every way. Uh, Would you take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, We uh, started the Gospel of Luke some time ago. Luke is a historian. He's very careful. He's very meticulous. He compiled, composed this account in order, and it fits with the book of Acts, which he also wrote. And you can see that he is given to detail and that the chapters in both of the books are incredibly lengthy. Well, we did something that I've never done before is we started the Gospel of Luke. We skipped over the Advent section, the story of the birth of Jesus. We skipped over that, saving it for the Christmas season. And so we paused in Luke chapter 5 and we pressed rewind and we went back to the end of Luke chapter 1 and on in through Luke chapter 2, which is where it found us this last Sunday. We pick up the account in Luke chapter 5, but I want to do a brief review because in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and following, which we saw at the end of November, a brief review, I want to read it because it shows the immediate response of yes to Jesus Christ. So we find our man in Luke chapter 5 saying yes to Jesus Christ. His name is Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. And then we see the very next reflex, his first response, having been so captivated by Jesus Christ. So let's look at the account, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. We find these words that he went out, that's Jesus, and noticed a tax collector named Levi. Now, tax collectors, you know by now, were not very popular people because they could be arbitrary in their demanding taxes. They could see you carrying a bundle, want to look inside and take what they wanted and get away with it. So they tended to be wealthy people and despised people. So now Jesus looks at this tax collector. He knows who he is. He knows everything he's ever done. He knows how he's extorted other people, and he calls him to a new way of life. So we find he sees Levi in the tax booth, so he's at his point of business, his place, and he said to him two words. I challenge you. You can't say more with two words than what Jesus says here. Follow me. That is simplicity, the other side of complexity. That is all of life summed up in the giver of life. You don't know what to do tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen next month. You don't know what experiences are in front of you for 2024. But these two words are words that Jesus still gives to us. And he sums up this life of following Jesus, two words, follow me. And what's Matthew's response Well, many times Jesus speaks to us in His Word and we understand with clarity just what it is He says, just what it is He means, and then we say, well, time out, wait a minute, I'm not yet ready for this. Not Matthew. Matthew has an immediate, in-the-moment yes. He left everything behind and got up and began to follow Him. What does this following Jesus looks like? Well, it means introducing people you know to Jesus. It means hospitality that he invites people in, that brings people into contact with this Jesus, the Jesus Christ, who says to us, follow me. So what happens? Levi gave a big reception. Sounds like Christmas time. A big reception for him in his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the? Tax collectors and the sinners, and Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. So here, Matthew's got money. He's got deep pockets. He's got a house. He has room in the house for a lot of people to gather. He shares his food. He throws a feast. If you and I had been at a party like that, Would you have felt like you belonged? Looking around at these people who were on the fringe of society, they they weren't people on the short list of invitations for prestigious and elite events. If you and I looked around, would we feel like this is a place for us? Well, that were religious elite, the aristocracy. They thought, what is he doing with these people? Because now they're going to rub off on him because you can tell about a person by the company they, they keep and now he's keeping company with these people. So now you can tell something about Jesus. So they be, begin to criticize Jesus. What in the world are you thinking? Who do you claim to be? Why are you with this group of people? And his answer is simply this. They need God. They need Jesus. They need to be forgiven. They're spiritually sick. They know they're not perfect. They know something's wrong with them. They're not deluded like the religious elite who think, I've arrived. I'm here. I'm better than. And you see that theme that rolls throughout the Gospels where the religious elite, they play the comparison card. And the comparison is, I'm better than you. Because of who I am, because of my birth, because of my pedigree, because of what I've done with my life, because of all of the good that I've done, I'm better than you. Jesus says, I didn't come for the self righteous, because the self righteous don't know they need Jesus. He came for the sick. He came for people who confess and admit their sin, who admit that they need a Savior, they need the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God who came to give His life for the sin of the world. The people who were gathered with Matthew in his house, they didn't think they deserved to be there. They didn't think Jesus owed them anything. But these are people that At least some of them said yes to Jesus Christ. That's why he came. So it's in that context of comparison, it's in that context of food, that we have several short, succinct examples of fasting and religious observances that flow right out of this comparison that the Pharisees and the scribes make with other people, and it involves food. And what we discover, Matthew and presumably some of his friends, they said yes to Jesus. The story unfolds that those who should have said yes, that had read the Old Testament, that knew the prophets, that were expecting the Messiah, they looked for reasons not to believe. If you don't want Jesus, you won't have to look far to come up with your own reasons on why you don't believe in Jesus. So we find these religious elite, these scribes and Pharisees, we find four reasons that they made up why they don't believe in Jesus. And the first reason is in chapter 5, verses 33 to 35. Why don't they believe in Jesus? Because of the people at the table with Jesus Christ. The people at the table gave the religious reason not to believe. What kind of followers do you have, Jesus? Well, your followers aren't like your, your cousin's followers. John's your cousin. Even his followers are different than your followers. Your followers, they're not like the followers of the Pharisees. We see the contrast in 33 to 35, chapter 5, in which Jesus, or they say to him, the disciples of John often fast. It's very religious practice. They fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. Not yours. They eat. And drink. So Jesus answers their question, and his question, the answer is absolutely extraordinary. In verse 34, Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? So fasting was commanded in the Old Testament. It was commanded in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 24 to 31. It was mostly practiced on the day of the atonement. But then the practice began to spread in the culture of ancient Israel, and it was connected with grief, sadness, mourning. So fasting then was accompanied by these feelings of grief, and it wasn't uncommon for the religious elite during the day of Jesus to fast on Monday and Thursday, twice a week, time to be sad, time to mourn, time to grieve. So the Pharisees are saying, in essence, that the world needs this room, needs more sadness. Our our country is in trouble Our country is occupied by the Roman elite, by the legions of Rome. Israel was under the jack boot of oppressors who made their life absolutely miserable and imposed incredible burdens. There's a lot to be sad about. Why aren't your followers fasting? Why aren't they grieving? And his response is to use wedding imagery. So now you're at a wedding. Hopefully a wedding is a happy event. It's one in which you look to the future and you celebrate that which is right. So now you've got a wedding party. You've got a wedding party, you've got a wedding event, you've got a big assembly of those people who know you best and love you the most, and you're going to have a happy time and a good time. So Jesus pictures himself as the bridegroom at a wedding party. It's a harbinger. It's a look forward to when he would call the church the bride of Christ, that he would so love us that he would give his life to die our death, raised to life, so that you and I collectively as a church were the bride of Christ. And so here he is the bridegroom, and his reasoning is simply this. Why would you fast at a party with the bridegroom in the house? You have every reason to rejoice. And it's summed up in this person in Jesus. So no matter what the life experience, no matter what happens tomorrow, because of Christ, you have reason right now to rejoice. So fasting is not appropriate in the room with Jesus Christ. Why don't they fast? Because Jesus is in the house. Because the Savior is among us. He's here. He's with us. That's why you could look around as a tax gatherer, as a sinner, and you could say, I belong here. I belong in the room with Jesus. He's the one who lived the life I should have lived. He died my death. He was raised to life. Because of Jesus Christ, I belong in the room, in the house with him but a day is coming again another harbinger look forward a day is coming when they will have reason to mourn when they will be sad when there will be grief when they will be in an upper room behind a locked door jesus christ is in the tomb they're in deep sorrow that day is around the corner So we find the account continued in verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That's looking at the coming death of Jesus Christ. Then they will fast in those days. So Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. It's time for joy. But a time is coming when he's going to be taken away. He's going to be removed from the wedding. Fasting may be an option. But Jesus Christ allows for the return of fasting, but He doesn't regulate it. It's not the main thing. It's not the priority. The priority is a relationship with the God of the Bible through His Son, Jesus Christ. So they come up with another reason why not to believe. They don't want to believe. They find another reason. Why not? Secondly, because they didn't like the taste of the gospel. Now, Jesus uses a different image, and it's an image of old wine and new wine. It involves old wineskins and new wineskins. It even involves an old garment. And how are you going to make it last longer? So, we see the account beginning in verse 36. Two word pictures. The first one, verse 36. He was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. I was the middle of seven children. I had three brothers. Two of them were older brothers. What that meant is I got hand-me-downs, and sometimes the knees would wear out in my jeans, and it would have been absolutely ludicrous for my mother to have gotten a brand-new pair of jeans, cut out the knee and use it to patch my old jeans. I mean it's comical. He's saying this is not the way you do life. It it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't go together. Jesus Christ is the new. His ways, his gospel, long expected, now observable in the person of Jesus Christ. The contrast is this. The gospel that Jesus inaugurates, that he offers, it doesn't fit with their highly external regulated rules and code and law that long ago lost the intent of the Mosaic law in the first place. Jesus brings something no, he, he shows us his grace and his mercy and his love in his gospel so that the old traditions that these leaders continue to advance and promote, they didn't fit with the life and the way and the person of Jesus Christ. Now he has the second for instance, the second word picture. And he uses wineskins, things that aren't as familiar to us necessarily today. And verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. Ruin. Simply this, you got an old cracked bag of leather. And you're going to put new wine inside of it. The new wine is going to continue to age. And it will continue to expand. And now you have the old bag can't contain the new life, the new wine. And so it burst. Verse 38. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So now you have new wineskins. There's been a lot of discussion really throughout my entire earthly ministry as to what these new wineskins are. I'm going to tell you what they're not. New wineskins are not a new way of doing church. New wineskins are not a new form. New wineskins are not the next trend or fad that the church embraces. I know years ago, a friend of mine was trying to, figure out a form, a a new wineskin that would picture baptism instead of dunking somebody beneath water. And he came up with this idea that he, he would at a youth event, not here, but at a youth event, he would get hundreds, if not thousands of younger people and they would have a rave. You may not even know what a rave is. But that's where you have a thousand, two thousand people crammed in a room and they're jumping up and down to the rhythm of the music. And then, And he actually did this. I wasn't there. They wouldn't let anybody under the age of 35. Literally, you couldn't register for the event. And I was already over 35. But I had friends from this church that went. And so he packed this house with over 2,000 people under the age of 35. And then he baptized them. He baptized them with one of those vapor machines that they use at rock concerts. And they just pumped it out and everybody inhaled and they were all baptized at once. And they proclaimed it, a new wineskin. That's not a new wineskin. That, that's a concoction of man, of humanity. The new wineskin is summed up in the person and the ways of Jesus Christ The old traditions promoted by the religious elite are not viable enough to hold and contain this life that he offers. Which brings us to the last verse. They didn't like the taste of the gospel. Verse 39. Check it out. No one after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. That's the Pharisees and the scribes. We'll stick with the old. We don't want the new. We don't like the taste of this new way of life, of this grace idea, of this mercy, of this kindness, of this forgiveness. From this person, this man, Jesus Christ, we don't buy you. We don't believe in you. They don't like the taste of the gospel. They'll stick with their old ways. You see that in one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Last Battle. I can't tell the whole story, but there is a moment where they're in this shed and the dwarves are in this shed and Aslan is in this shed and Aslan is this Christ figure and he offers this sumptuous meal for these dwarves and they're absolutely blind. And I probably shouldn't even try to tell this story. Just go read the book. But they're blind and he's giving them this feast of the best of food and the best of drink and they decide this is the worst meal they've ever had. They think they're eating the manure inside this shed and they reject it and they push back. That's verse 39. Jesus is offering to them life, grace, mercy, forgiveness, undeserved. And they're fabricating reasons why I don't Like it. I don't believe you. There is a third reason that they fabricated, and that is in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. They didn't like what he did on Saturdays. They didn't like what he did on Saturdays. Saturday was the Sabbath, and keeping the Sabbath was a clear teaching of the Mosaic law. Jesus Christ. Fully and completely fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all the law. He did away with ceremonial law. He continued the moral law of God. Of This is what's good, and this is what's evil, and this is right, and this is of God. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He had authority over the law. We're not under the law. We are under Jesus. Old wineskins cannot contain Jesus. So now we come to the Sabbath. We come to the Sabbath, and the Mosaic law instructed people to keep the Sabbath. But the religious aristocracy, they added so much detail to the Sabbath. They had a a list of regulations that was called 40 save 1, as in 39 as in 39 activities prohibited on the Sabbath. In the ancient Jewish scriptures, the Mishnah said that, quote, the rules about the Sabbath, listen to this, are as mountains hanging by a hair. For scripture is scanty and the rules are many. That's what they subjected the people to. They had all of these rules. So you had this A, B, C, D. I've got to do all this stuff. And if I don't do this stuff, then I'm in deep weeds. Then I've violated or broken the law. And that's not the truth. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. So now you come to the Sabbath, and they observe the followers of Jesus doing something scandalous on the Sabbath. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. So now they're with Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're listening to Jesus. They're in a grain field. His disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I've done this. I used to haul wheat from southern Oregon. Big truck. I'd have to be out in the field. Truck would be loaded at 2.30 a.m. And so I'm out there, I'm waiting for them to load the truck to haul it up to Longview or haul it up to the port of Portland. And I'm walking around through the, the wheat field and I'm taking those heads of wheat and I'm just shredding that and I'm pulling it up. And that would be a snack to keep me awake while I was on five headed north. It, it, it was nourishing, it, it, it was a great reminder and memory. Now that, that's what these guys are doing, they're hungry. It's Saturday. It's the Sabbath. They're working. They're harvesting wheat. This is ludicrous. Jesus calls them out on the definition and rule and purpose of the Sabbath. And He gives them a comeback, a pushback from the life of David. And His reasoning is this. You respect King David. If we're wrong... By eating these heads of grain on the Sabbath, then David was wrong. That's the logic. So the account continues. Jesus answered, verse 3, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat, except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So David's example is, is, he was on the run for his life. He was running from King Saul. Saul was trying to kill David, who had already been anointed king. And in process, they go into a, one of the holier places and they eat bread that was reserved for the priests alone. That was off limits, not when a life is concerned. So David goes ahead with his men, and just as David gave consecrated bread to his men, so Jesus, he gives a form of bread to his followers, the wheat. It's a new way of responding to this Jesus who fulfilled the law, and then he gives himself a royal title, Son of Man. That is another word for the Messiah, the one that God would send to save the world. He is Son of Man, and then He calls Himself Lord. He has authority over the Sabbath. His followers were following Him. They were with Him. So they resisted the ways of Jesus. They came up with yet another reason. A fourth reason that they came up with why not to believe in Jesus is in verses 6 to 11. Because they objected to his compassion. So now it's another Sabbath. Now Jesus is in the synagogue. Now he's teaching in the synagogue. There's a man. He's quite visible. He has a, a withered hand, a paralyzed hand. I don't know if you've ever had a limb or anything go so numb that you're unable to use it, but it would be really hard to do life, to work, to engage, to have a hand that is non-functional. So here is this guy, his hand is messed up. The religious elite are looking for a gotcha moment. Is he going to do it again? Is he going to heal somebody On the Sabbath, is he going to work? Well, do you know the answer? So we read the account in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward, and he got up and came forward. The guy obeys Jesus. He does the smartest thing that anyone could ever do. He approaches Jesus Christ. And then Jesus tells him, first he asks this question of the religious experts. I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or destroy it? Is it okay for Son of Man, Lord of Sabbath, to give this guy a brand new hand, one that functions, one that does what God intends when he gives us our arms and legs and our bodies? So we ask that question, and then I love this image. I wish I could see it. He says, stretch out your hand. So now, this guy reaches for Jesus. That's the image I see. He is reaching toward Son of Man, Son of God. He is reaching for Jesus. It's as if he looks the audience in the eye, looks the man in the eye, Verse 10 and 11, looking around at them, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and disgust together what they might do to Jesus. They got him. They caught him. They caught him exercising compassion, healing power. To somebody in desperate need. And that's what we experience this morning as we approach the communion table together. As incredible as it is for Him to heal us in a moment, so much greater still that He would wipe away our sin, that He would forgive us of our sin. If we only could understand just how great and how kind He is, we would never. Be the same. My office is an absolute disaster. It's a mess. Every single surface is full of boxes and books. They're sorted. I know which I'm going to keep. I know which ones to give away. My kids have already scavenged through it. Next up are going to be other people in the body. But I have this one stack of books I haven't read in decades. You've probably never read anything by this guy. I kept the books. He discipled my dad during World War II as a part of the Navigators. My dad grew up in Jesus under the tutelage of this guy. This guy went on. He was an officer. He went on to write about 50 books. And I never had to wonder what dad was going to give me for my birthday or for Christmas. So dad would give me one of his books. I read them. I kept them. I haven't looked at them in decades. I don't remember what's in them. But I do remember this. He was my dad's close friend all the way through the rest of their lives. And when my dad was in the early stages of dementia, I was visiting dad and this friend called him. And as dad and his friend spoke, dad said to his friend, Bill, my son is here. Would you give him some counsel as a pastor? The guy greeted me. We spoke for a bit. And then he said, Paul, all I had to say is this. Quote, Paul, always... Always keep your heart warm toward Jesus. Always keep your heart warm toward Jesus. It's not that hard to harden up, to back away. It's, it's not that hard to circumcise or to supersize my circumstances. It's not, it's not hard for self-pity to get its hooks into us. For us to see what's what's wrong, what was wrong with 2023, to dread 2024, it's not hard. Always, 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 let's keep our heart warm toward Jesus. Ask him. Ask him to soften your heart. Ask him to give you a thirst. Ask him to give you a hunger. A desire for Him that can only be fulfilled by saying yes to Him right now where we are. Will you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would quicken our hearts with your grace and your mercy and your love, that you would captivate us, draw us to you, give us greater awareness of your kindness, of your patience, of your steadfastness. And Father, as we approach the communion table in obedience to you, Refresh the meaning and significance of the bread and the cup in the name of Jesus. Amen.